0: Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I've always said these podcasts were my way of asking questions I genuinely don't know the answer to, but to look as if I might be doing a public service at the same time. Lately, we've been talking about energy and climate change and how South Africa is going to respond to it all. To say we're all over the place is putting it mildly. On paper, there's the Integrated Resource Plan of 2019. That's supposed to be our energy bible but it seems to be already out of date. Making assumptions that can't be met, like getting hydropower from the Congo River or changing assumptions altogether. The IRP makes relatively little provision for gas and suddenly gas is on everyone's lips. What is clear is that the so-called just transition, the design and pace of the transition to carbon neutrality from coal-fired power stations as we have now, in order to protect coal jobs and the black business elite that's moved into coal as traditional miners have abandoned it, that's up for grabs, this transition. And so, what is just? What do we mean by just here? Actually, a slow process, or one that gets us across the line and operating properly as soon as possible. My guest today sort of owns a large part of the answer. He's an expert in energy storage, amongst many other things. He's modeled it, and I can't wait for you to listen to him. Clyde Mallinson is an independent energy analyst. And, Clyde, thank you. So much for your time. Could I start by asking you why storage hardly appears to feature at all in the IRP? Let me just quickly tell people where we are. So in the IRP, current storage is regarded as 3,000 megawatts, and we know that's hydro storage. That's water. Um, They add another um, 513 megawatts this year, which I'm not sure is happening and a further 1,500 megawatts in 2029. That's not a lot. Why why are they not planned for more storage, Clyde? Hi, uh,
1: morning Peter, great to be on this cast and thanks for that kickoff question. Well, the answer is that for a long time, the uh, designers of the system and the people looking at adequacy have put a lot of faith in the fact that the coal fleet will operate as it should operate and that the new members of the coal fleet will operate as one would like them to. And that, quite frankly, uh, we don't need, in in the eyes of the RP, we don't need that much storage. And, of course, storage for a long time has been very expensive. So generally speaking, even when the CSRR looked at modeling not that long ago, uh, there wasn't a a large amount of storage because we are still so dominated by coal, by nuclear, um, that the need for storage wasn't foreseen in the way that we are going to need it. So what I actually like doing is looking what the situation will be like when we no longer have a coal fleet. And when we no longer have a nuclear fleet, I think that's a really good point to start at, is to say, how much storage will we need when we are fully decarbonized and we are operating our system virtually entirely on wind and solar? And that's a good point that I like to start at.
0: Well, go on. Please answer that question because it's, it's, it's the next obvious one. How much will we need?
1: Right. So so my calculations show that we will need somewhere between five to ten times as much storage as what they have put in the RP twenty nineteen by twenty thirty. And that by twenty forty more or less, let's let's use twenty forty as a date when the coal fleet is completely retired and where the nuclear fleet is completely retired, although the nuclear fleet will be completely retired by mid twenty twenties basically if it if it doesn't get life extended. Uh then we'll need approximately thirty five gigawatts of storage of eight hour duration. So you correctly said we currently have approximately three in pump storage. So we will need more than ten times as much storage.
0: By well, when Clive?
1: Huh? By by twenty forty. Okay assuming 2040 is the date by when we have completely retired the coal fleet. And also, and this is, a, this is quite a big assumption, but it's an easy one to understand, assuming we just use the same amount of electricity as we currently do. So it actually becomes quite nuanced because we need a quantum of storage that can meet our peak load. And our peak load at the moment is somewhere around about 35 gigawatts. So we need storage that can deliver 35 gigawatts. Uh, generally in the early evening, when the sun is obviously not shining, and assuming that none of the wind sites in the whole country are generating anything, our minimum storage size in terms of capacity needs to equal our current evening peak load, which is about 35. So that sets an easy-to-understand Limit. If you're going to, at some point, use 35, and you haven't, and you've only got wind and solar and storage, your storage needs to be at least 35.
0: So that's a, that's the sort of cataclysmic view of it. In other words, there's never any wind at half past five in the afternoon. Uh, the sun has gone down, um, and there's nothing. So right, there's no base load. There's no more coal left. Um, Kuberg, uh, uh was never uh, it's, it was never recommissioned. It never. So that's that's the worst case or the best case depending on where you stand
1: yeah what's particularly interesting is that the big mistake we make or i believe it's a mistake that's made is that we look at peak load and we say okay by 2040 our peak's going to be at the same time and it's going to be bigger than it is now and that's in fact by 2040 our peak will be in the middle of the day We will be peaking demand in the middle of the day for the simple reason is that's when we'll be charging our batteries. We will have surplus solar in the middle of the day, and the battery, when it's in charging mode, is actually a demand center. And so it's actually more important to size the battery at a size that it's big enough to be able to soak soak up the excess solar that's happening at midday and charge up the battery. So, in fact, it's more important that the battery is of a size that's big enough to be able to put as much of that surplus into it as is possible. Um, and, and so it's, it's kind of like it's, it's not so much trying to cover the peak anymore. It's trying to be big enough to be able to take the excess that's coming at midday. And so our peak will be at midday in future. And our trough will still probably be at round about midnight to two o'clock in the morning. We'll have a totally different demand profile. And that's something I think people don't fully appreciate. They kind of just extrapolate the current demand profile forward. It will be completely different.
0: But so what happens when you can see when people talk about energy in the future, you can see how frightened they are because they're frightened to let go of this notion of baseload, that there has to be something that is always producing electricity not just passively holding on to it, but always and without stop being able to produce it. So it's either a nuclear plant or a coal plant. What is the leap of faith that those people need to make, that you make?
1: Yeah, if you want to stick with the base load, you know, the definition of base load has nothing to do with generation. It's literally the, the load profile, the lowest point of the load profile is by definition the base point of the load. And the question then is, how do you meet not just the base point of the load, but how do you meet all of the load? And traditionally, people have said, well, we, we, we never drop below a certain base level of load, and therefore we need base generation, if you like, to meet base load. But of course, base load isn't when we normally have our problem. It's everything above the base of the load that causes our problem. And normally, we, we battle to supply at peak times, uh, we, we can generally provide enough electricity to meet our so called base load, and so the the terms have been mixed together, and I prefer to to talk about things as 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 base generation or generation that needs to run consistently twenty four seven if possible to be most efficient. And typically that's nuclear and coal. Coal doesn't like to be switched on and off. Nuclear can't be switched on and off. You know, the, the reactions take place. I mean, you obviously can switch off the power output from Kubu, but you can't switch off the radioactive decay of the uranium in the reactors. It's happening all the time. So um, what what we, what yeah. we misunderstand is that we don't just need to meet our so-called base point of the load. We need to meet our full load with different generation technologies. And, and the, perhaps the most difficult part for the incumbents to understand is that if we, if we swept away all of the coal fleet, and I don't mean just ditched it, but if we could imagine that it was gone tomorrow and the nuclear fleet, we can then very easily calculate what is the least cost replacement. In other words, what, how much wind, how much solar and how much storage should we build to be able to have full security of supply, which will deliver at base load levels, but also deliver throughout the whole load? What is the cheapest mix we can build? And it turns out we can either build slightly less wind and solar. We obviously have enough. We have to build enough to be able to cover our needs. And then we build huge batteries. And we say, gee, we're even going to store some of the excess in summer and use it in winter. And that's where some countries run into interseasonal problems. In South Africa, we don't have that problem. We tend to have not a, as big a disconnect between summer and winter. So, what becomes cheaper then is to build more wind and solar and have smaller batteries or less storage. And if you do that, you end up with the cheapest possible capital cost mix of what you build. And if we do that, you de facto have surpluses of wind and solar for most of the year because you design a system that can give you absolutely security of absolute security of supply on the worst patch in winter when these fewer hours of sunshine. And if you can get through that worst patch of wind in winter, um, securely, It de facto means that you have surpluses of wind and solar for the rest of the year. And that's really the problem with incumbent utilities. They don't like surpluses because they think surpluses need to be curtailed. I mean, anyone can see it would be ludicrous to be running a coal plant and generating a surplus of electricity and then burning the coal but cutting off the the generator, so to speak. It, it just doesn't make sense but in the case of renewable variable renewable resources it makes complete sense to overbuild wind and solar put in fewer batteries but still enough to give you security of plan you get your cheapest price point um and and that's that's the basis of it so if you if you want to worry about the so called what can supply absolutely, then, of course, the batteries can. We're going to have 35 gigawatts of batteries. So those batteries will be able to supply almost 20 times as much as what Kuburg supplies with absolute surety for at least eight hours. And that's basically saying that we will be at peak for a full eight hours. And when you look at our... Wind and solar, complementary resources, we never have to do that. We would never have to run for a full eight hours at peak load, just by definition, because peak load happens at seven in the evening. In the middle of the night, our peak load is perhaps 16 gigawatts. So it would never happen. And when you model it, you make sure that the combination of wind and solar and storage is able to deliver not the base load, the full load, was absolute reliability for the whole year.
0: So this is—I mean—that's absolutely fascinating, and I'm glad—I'm glad you said all of that. I wanted to ask you um, a question that occurred to me as I was reading. There was a very good energy supplement in Business Day uh, late last week, um, and one of the and one of the editors, Colin Anthony, um, suggests that instead of really messing around, you know, we we, we have an idea of what we're short of and you can see it when when load shedding occurs um you know what what is the argument against doing the following as he suggests decide what the shortage is let's say it's 10,000 megawatts or 5,000 megawatts or whatever it might be and simply increase the next renewables bid window to fill that shortage and 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 whether it's and I wanted to add to something. So he, what he means, I suspect, is fill it with 5,000 megawatts of, of wind and solar. But if if every project like that, the wind and solar project, included battery storage, would that fundamentally change the game? Could that be done or does it make the whole project too expensive? Um, why... Why do we build wind and solar without batteries? Are, the batteries, presumably, Clyde, already exist.
1: Yes, look, stor- storage technology has dropped uh, in cost by ninety percent in the last decade, and it's due to drop by another eighty percent in the next decade, more or less. So it's 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 come down hugely, more so than any other technology. And although one could argue now there's a bit of a spike with prices of of, of um, uh, lithium and, and nickel and cobalt well there's also a bit of a spike in in, in fossil fuels at the moment, so those two arguments, if you like uh, cancel each other up to, to, to a certain extent i think I think what 's going to be faster than necessarily trying to design a procurement process that insists on complementary storage is to actually allow the private sector to build and to supply to private clients from private PPAs um, as quickly as possible. Uh, Because we saw, we tried to have a a so-called emergency risk mitigation procurement program. And it tried to say you had to be able to deliver from five o'clock in the morning to 9.30 and the people who managed to do that with renewables put in inordinate amounts of storage. And if you remember what I said earlier, you can either build a huge amount of storage to try and give you the so-called mythical baseload load between bookends from 5 in the morning to 9.30 at night, or you can just inject that extra energy into the system. And I can tell you right now that Eskom currently, its biggest problem is it doesn't have enough energy in the system to make use of its existing storage. We're actually very fortunate in that we have a great big three gigawatts of existing storage with 20 hours of capacity, and we're having to shed load at night in order to fill the, the, the pump storage dams. In other words, we're short of, of, of energy. So if we put five so wait a yeah, yeah. Sorry, we
0: Sorry, we, we, we're load shedding in order to fill up the storage. Correct,
1: correct. And we load shedding in order to allow the diesel resources to be replenished in the diesel storage tanks. Think of diesel, in a sense, also as storage because the diesel is stored in tanks and the open cycle gas turbines that run on diesel can only run for as long as there's diesel in the storage tanks. And and I think it was possibly Jan Oberholzer who said, uh, we can't run our open cycle gas turbines on diesel 24-7, we run out of diesel. We can't get the diesel trucks to Ankelich and Goritze and the other points fast enough to be able to keep those things running. So they have two weeks of storage built in, but the two weeks of storage is meant to be sufficient if those facilities are only being used for three, four hours a day. In other words, you're you you you're running at peak times with the OCGTs. Now, if you're running those open cycle gas turbines for even 12 hours a day, your two weeks suddenly becomes four days. So when ESCOM put out load shedding notices, they always say, uh, not always, but most of the time, they say we're running low on reserve margin. And that's code, if you like. It's not code. Reserve margin means water in the upper dams on the pump storage schemes and diesel in the diesel tanks.
0: So basically we're, there's a, we know that there's a crisis and there's an emergency the current powers that be, the establishment let's say, the elite business uh, government, ESCOM they are um, they're all looking at how to solve this via a transition Right? They like to call it a just transition, and it's all for the workers. Of course, it's not for the workers. It's for it's for the companies. It's for the coal uh, suppliers, who now turn out to be large constituents of the ANC, um, who are saying, hang on, we've just bought these resources. You can't shut us down. Anyway, whatever the c- case may be, we have a situation where um, – they want to, instead of just going straight wind and solar and doing what you suggest they do, we're going we're to take an extra 20-year chunk out of our economy or out of our lives and find something to transition with, and it's going to be gas. Um, I don't know whether you've looked at the uh, National Business Initiative, the NBI report about two weeks ago. Um, this is a SASOL-led initiative, but it's, there are a lot of heavyweight signatures on it. Um, which suggests that no, we can build infrastructure in South Africa uh between twenty thirty 2030 and twenty thirty five to 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 fill the gap with gas, with LNG brought to our shores and ships. This is not Gwede Mantashe's car power ships solution, it's something else. We can feed the gas into um perhaps some of ESCOM's current diesel fired uh, gas turbines, or we could put, you know, we can actually create some um, uh, energy plant, gas fired energy plant, coast of the sea, um, and it would not, in the end, it wouldn't end up as a sort of stranded asset, you know, that it would be okay, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be spending too much money. What I wanted to ask you, though, I mean, we could, if we put our backs into it, we could solve this thing now. I mean, we could, in terms of wind and solar and batteries, we could go for it. We know how much we need. We could start tomorrow, surely
1: C- correct once you once you t- and, and one needs to understand we 're not talking about sweeping the coal fired power stations uh, away overnight. There is a transition, and the transition really is to to rationally get as much as we can out of the coal fleet, and when I say as much as we can, we basically need to build the new wind and solar and storage in order to create the headroom to enable us to shut down the coal fleet and the coal mining associated with the coal fleet in an ordinary fashion. So instead of uh, the the coal fleet auto-retiring itself and us then scrambling to fill the gaps, we need to have a A build program that creates headroom that allows us then in a rational fashion to retire the coal fleet. That's really the the one point. And I also just want to mention that storage is not restricted to battery storage. I think there are opportunities for more pumped hydro storage. I think ESCOM themselves have got some opportunities there. Uh, I think there's a a pumped hydro scheme that was in the making uh, in Limpopo province near Steelport Valley. And then, of course, something that most people aren't aware of, all or many of our old gold mines have got still today are pumping water out. And those gold mines basically are water storage devices of note so we have chambers in dolomitic chambers in the gold mines that sit near the surface and that water then percolates down to the bottom and has to be pumped out even if the dam even if the mine is closed so there's an opportunity to build pumped hydro storage in old gold mines and in fact existing gold mines where you wouldn't have to civilly construct brand new dams. You've basically got underwater dams at different levels that could be utilised.
0: You generate the electricity by by pumping the water into the dam and as it falls into the mine it would turn a turbine, is that right?
1: You no, know, you would you would you would you would pump up from a lower level of the dam to a, of, of underground to a higher level when you've got surplus electricity. So it's in the middle of the day, the sun shining, you generating more than we're using. You would pump to an upper reservoir underground, and then at night or at peak time in the evening, you would drop it from that upper reservoir through a thing called a penstock. It's basically just a tunnel, and in that tunnel sits a turbine. And that turbine, it's basically a pumped hydro scheme. But I don't know if you realize the amount of water on the far west rand in those gold mines that have dolomite overlying them equals something like 15 times the amount of water stored in the wild dam sitting Mm. underground. So the other advantage is it doesn't evaporate. Um, And we're having to pump it anyway all of Mm. the time to stop the levels filling up and leading to acid mine drainage. So that's just one example. Another would be we can take old mine dumps and turn them into uh, uh, gravity masses and then lift and lower big chunks of old mine dump, if you like, that are put into blocks, and that becomes a a form of gravity storage. So I just want to to just get the point home that uh, energy storage systems are not all or only battery energy storage systems. There's a range of energy storage solutions.
0: Yes. Now, I I, I understand perfectly. But come back to batteries for a moment. How sophisticated are they? And what will batteries look like, not only in cost terms, but what will they look like in size terms, I guess, and technology? Because we're still talking about old-style batteries. These are lithium-ion batteries where, you know, they've got liquid in them. What about, you know, will solid-state batteries ever make a presence felt? And what, but even if they don't, what do what does current battery technology look like in a decade?
1: Okay, well, well even already, you can fit two megawatt hours into a single 12-meter uh, container. So if you wanted 100 megawatt hours, you would require about 50 containers. Now, to put that into perspective, um, a, a solar farm, or for that matter, a coal mine, Uh, A single solar farm or a single coal mine would probably represent enough space to build, you know, 50 percent of the batteries we need in terms of space requirements. So basically, if you're looking at relatively small, you stick with containers because that's quick. It can be installed quickly. If you're going really big, you probably build a purpose built building. That would house the batteries uh, and and there would be no need to containerize it and those Those things are measured in hectares, not thousands of hectares or hundreds of hectares even in a in a single hectare you can You can place a very large battery and the nice thing about batteries is that it's best to actually spread them around a bit. So instead of having what you don't have to think of it in terms of like pump storage where you've got a dam on von Rhiannon's Pass. You can say instead of building yep. one big storage facility, we can place the storage at each of the substations, for example, in Johannesburg. And so, and so now the battery, and, and strangely, yep. well, not strangely enough, interestingly enough, energy storage is most valuable in the hands of the system operator because it's not just for backup for load shedding. It's basically used to 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 um, charge up when you've got surpluses and to discharge when you've got shortages, but it also massively increases the utility of your grid. You can imagine now in the Northern Cape, we've got lots of solar and it's, it's kind of maxed out. We can't put more solar in because the, the, the transmission network coming out of it can't carry it. But you can imagine just... Very easily, if one put battery storage in the Northern Cape, you could put double the amount of solar. You could be exporting the solar. The other half you could be putting into the battery and you could then export that other half from the Northern Cape on the same transmission lines as you're currently exporting. And you could double the output or double the carrying capacity from the Northern Cape. But just going back to your question on gas, because it's important. Um the bulk of the modeling that's been done, even with fewer resources of storage than what I would advocate, indicates that we if we're going to use gas at all it's going to it's going to represent maybe one percent of our annual output uh, and the people who are advocating for gas, in particular combined cycle gas turbines are saying, who's going to ever want to look for new gas fields of South Africa if we're only going to generate one terawatt hour a year from the gas? So they're pressing for an anchor offtake tenant, if you like, in the power sector. And they're saying, we want you to to run at least 60% of the time so that we can say, gee, this new combined cycle gas turbine is going to need X amount of gas. Now it can incentivize gas exploration companies to go and look for the stuff because they can say, oh, we've got ourselves a, an anchor tenant for our shopping center, so to speak. And all of the studies show that we don't need an yeah. anchor tenant. These, these cheaper ways of producing electricity than, than running gas on a combined cycle basis um, and looking to replace a three gigawatt coal plant with for example a three gigawatt gas plant is looking to replace old with old yeah if you look at the economies in the world that already have a sophisticated gas infrastructure uh, upstream infrastructure everything they're actually turning away from gas you know i think not everywhere but certainly in california and many of the States in America, you no longer are allowed to do new building developments and put in gas infrastructure for piping of gas to those places. So they they're actually backpedaling out of gas uh, at a very time when, I don't know, sometimes we feel we have to follow global trends and because the rest of the world was allowed to use gas, we we have to use gas, although we don't have any at the moment. And I always smile at this because it's almost like saying, well, the rest of the world used, uh, I don't know, celluloid photography. Imagine if we had never had any cameras in South Africa and we then had digital cameras. And someone said, well, we've got to have our turn to use the good old Agfa and Kodak cameras. It's just ludicrous.
0: We want a just transition for photography.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's just crazy. So,
0: yeah. You mentioned when we spoke the other day, that there was a way that people could become more involved in this new um, era, this new energy future of ours. Um, That storage was something that could, you know, what we do in South Africa now is we, we collect taxes and we give them away to poor people simply to keep them quiet, basically, so that they don't, Rise up against you know those of us who have jobs or whatever it might be um but there must be a better way to involve people in the future and in their economy and you had some thoughts about how a a renewables future gas i mean sorry um uh, storage, solar, and wind um could really be an inclusive one in in a in a meaningful way.
1: Peter, to me, that's the essence of a so-called just transition. A just transition obviously includes the livelihoods of of people working on the coal fleet and people involved in coal mining and that base is covered because the amount of jobs that will be created will far exceed the number of jobs that are lost and there's any number of studies done by reputable institutions, the CSRR, there's a whole lot that have looked at the the job. So, So that's Take that as a given. I'm more interested in closing the Gini Index in South Africa, taking us from that dreadful worst position in the world in terms of inequality. And perhaps the best way to explain it is to say that investing in this new fleet is what I call pension fund heaven. Um, The fleet, if we build it and sell electricity from it, either to private clients or to ESCOM or whatever it may be, we can sell electricity at the factory gate of a fleet that comprises wind solar and storage at a considerable discount to what we are currently have to pay what we currently are paying for factory gate escom electricity and you understand what i mean by factory gate i don't so, so we're talking prior to delivery okay so we're just talking at the generation at the factory gate prior to delivery we can do it at a at a at a significant discount the discount with the new price increases is probably 50%. We can produce factory-gate electricity at half the cost of what ESCOM are currently producing factory-gate electricity at. Now, at that price point, the whoever builds and owns the, the solar plant, the storage facility, the wind facility um, – that facility can be funded for example with pension fund money let's just start with pension fund we all kind of understand what pension fund money is and we're not talking here about taking government employees pension funds and bailing out escom debt we're talking about investing it in this new fleet the new fleet at those price points that i've indicated that will save us that large amount of money will be able to deliver dividends To the pension fund beneficiaries that are better than the last 10 year average of what they've received, or whether it's the ESCOM pension fund or Allen Gray or Old Mutual or Sandland, you can deliver dividends on a pension fund investment from this, from renewable energy that would basically put pension fund investment managers out of business because they wouldn't have to think anymore about where to invest their portfolio. So taking that as a point of departure. And and someone could say, Clyde, you're crazy, that's not the case. I'll say, okay, so instead of saving 60 cents a kilowatt hour, um, uh, we can save 50 cents and add another cent, another 10 cents to the to the pension fund investment. Now it's going to be returning 10% real Instead of 8% real, you know, how high do you want it to be? Because we've still got another 50 cents in the bag. You can actually almost socially engineer the return on the pension fund. Now, recognizing that that will impact on people who are lucky enough to have pension funds, in other words, people who have jobs, you can start saying, well, what about the jobless? They they haven't got pension funds. So how are they going to benefit? And the answer is... Just to give you a, an actual tangible amount, and I'm not saying this is that that people will do this, but I want to illustrate it as an as an as an as an option. Let's say that a, a commercial bank lends an unemployed person who happens to own an RDP house a hundred thousand rand as a bond against that house. Uh, knowing full well that that person has very little chance of being able to pay back that bond but let's also say that they give them that bond at the lowest possible interest rate not the highest in other words they give that bond at a at a prime minus the same way they would give it to someone living on beachy head in blittenbue bay at prime minus but they do that on condition that the homeowner purchases a green bond with that money, and that green bond will specifically be to build a solar plant or a wind plant or a storage facility, preferably in the in the district where they where they hail from. The dividends that they would receive from that bond ownership would be sufficient to repatriate the bond that they had taken from a commercial bank. In fact, over 20 years, it would not just repatriate the bond that they had taken. It would do so two and a half fold. So if they had borrowed 100000 they would earn back 250000 over the period of a bond. Now, the interesting thing there is that's before one places any green value on this. It's before one says, well, what's the carbon tax? This is just pure economics. So now we know carbon taxes are coming. We know that the world is itching to offer very, very low interest rates to countries who can reduce their carbon footprint. So what I'm saying is that the $8 billion that has come in for accelerating deceler- uh, the, the, the usage, of the, the decommissioning of the coal fleet, if perhaps $1 billion of that $8 billion was used to underwrite collateral for people who don't have collateral to enable them to borrow the 100,000 from the commercial banks, buy a stake in a solar or wind or storage facility in their district, know that they have an ownership in that. They can drive past it on their bicycle, ride past it and say, those solar panels belong to me. The idea would be that that I've modeled it and within 15 years, especially if one can monetize the green value of what we're talking about. But even if one can't, within 15 years, the dividends received from that green bond will equal about half of what a current SASA grant is if we stick to that 100,000 number. And it will be three to four times as much as a COVID relief bond. And so the idea would be that this new fleet would be owned by 10 million South Africans who have been excluded from the bond markets previously.
0: That's a fantastic uh, point to end this conversation on, Clyde. Thank you very, very much for an extremely enriching conversation and I hope uh, listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. I'll be back next week for the last of our climate change conversations for a while. Don't miss it and take care of yourselves until then.